this semester, um, we've been looking at uh, Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, this famous uh, sermon that he offered that sounds a little bit different than American sermons we hear, uh, but it was totally effective. It was absolutely God's word, and it's an invitation for us to actually reconcile our lives to him. One of the things that I think that's been happening to me over these past several weeks, and I hope it's been happening to you, is that there's some things that are just kind of hard for, to hear him say. There are some things that he says that just don't really land softly and sometimes helpfully. Other times I think there have been some moments where my heart's been a little bit cynical and be like, man, this feels so cliche. I hear this all over the place. And yet it's these words, the words of our king, that we're invited to find our life within. We're invited to let his words be louder than our own, to be truer than our own, to be, to be more profound than the words that we hear around us and even the words that we tell ourselves. We're to come into contacts, contact with the words of our king and find our life together as a community with him. This is what we've been looking at. This is what the sermon is all about. What does it look like to relate to Jesus as king. Well, tonight we're going to continue. We're going to read a good large section in chapter 6, uh, verses 1 uh, to 18. I think David will have it up here for us, but you can follow along there or um, on your own Bibles. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the fa your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their, secret, their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of the Lord, and it's forever. Let's pray. Father, hey. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for gathering us in this room. Thank you for going before us and now residing with us by your spirit and Jesus, Lord willing, leading us as we understand your sermon. 
Would you carefully and digestibly help us to see what you're saying here? Lord, we don't want big heads. We want big hearts. We want to hear what you say so much so that it resonates with us in a way that we begin to relate to you freshly, in ways that we begin to use the things you've reminded us of for the sake of our neighbors. We ask you to do big things according to your glory. In your name, Jesus. Amen. What's your favorite talent show? Like, for real. Got one in here? No? What? What? Okay, there we go. Like it. Any others? I won't, I won't do this long. What you got, Marcus? So you think you can do Okay, I like it. I like it. Um, look, what, did you have one, Riley? Oh, no, you don't. Sorry. Um, we don't have to think very long to see the ways in which we're infatuated with some talent shows. Like, we love a good talent show. Maybe REF should do a talent show, right? I mean, come on, let's do it. Let's just remind ourselves of a few of these that have been super impactful in our lives, right? They've been so meaningful for us, right? American Idol, man, that, was, that changed my life. The Great British Baking Show, Dancing with the Stars, The Voice, The Bachelor. By the way, that's just a marriage competition. Don't be fooled. Last Comic Standing, Think You Can Dance. One of my favorites, Clash of Choirs. You've never heard of that. you never heard of that. Circa 2007, maybe three episodes. Friends, our world is chock full of talent shows everywhere. In fact, all the art in our culture, all the music that we sing is reflective of something that's actually happening within us, right? This is, this is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus into his world, is to hear the ways that his people have begun to create themselves and to create communities. And we can begin to hear and learn what's happening on the inside. These talent shows are telling us something. Think about the way we, 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 we think of our lives as talent shows, as, as they're related to our resumes. We build them and build them for the panel of judges, for the hopeful employer that we may have. We think about the talent show of our social media lives where we curate our brands for the panel of judges that is our friends and our peers. We think about the talent show of virtue signaling to the panel of judges that are our alliances and enemies so we don't get voted off the island. Shout out to Survivor. Thank you, Riley, for saving me. Because this is so ingrained in our hearts and our culture, we naturally misappropriate this talent show living with our life with God. Did you hear what I said? We, this is so much of who we are. This is what we, we, we think we're made to do that we begin to relate to our God in the same way. And we turn life with him into a talent show. How does he respond? He issues a strong warning. Right at the top of our, of our verse, it's, or our text, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Why would, why would talent show Christianity be a problem for God? Don't we want to please him after all? Don't we want to worship him? Don't we want to, to serve him and follow him? Because like the whole entire sermon that we've already been giving ourselves to, Jesus is saying there is an iceberg underneath the surface of your lives. There is a motor beneath the hood of your life. There is so much happening behind the scenes that we have become so callous to see and to sense ourselves. And so Jesus issues this warning. He says, 
The performance in and of itself isn't bad, but rather what lurks behind is something he calls hypocrisy. Did you see that throughout the text? Jesus calls these people, calls you and I, frankly, hypocrites. And he's doing something so skillful here. He's hijacking a word that was used in the Greek theater. What we would refer to as an actor, as an actress, they refer to as a hypocrite. Because it was these individuals that wouldn't wear makeup, they wore masks. So that they could portray the character, to project the identity of that character, the lifestyle, the hopes and dreams of that character. And Jesus is skillfully hijacking the vocabulary of the Greek theater, and he's applying it to our lives and saying, you're wearing me like a costume. You may appear moral, you may appear devoted to me, but it's not really you. In fact, this is one of the primary critiques of the church from those on the outside. You hypocrites. You see, what Jesus is after tonight is that our motives matter. Why we do something is sometimes as much, if not more important, than what we do. And so Jesus is going to do just that in sort of three sort of primary areas of our practiced devotion to him. We're going to look at giving in verses 2 to 4. We're going to look at praying in verses 5 to 15. And then we're going to look at fasting in verses 16 to 18. And in each one, he is going to expose this mask of hypocrisy that now plagues the talent show spirituality that we carry. And he's going to call it out with a couple of phrases that the reason I read this whole text was so that you could hear the repetition in this. He says over and over, to be seen, to be praised, to be seen, to be heard, to be seen. He's making it clear what he is seeing in you and I, in some of our forms of worship to him. So we're going to think about the ways in which we can find ourselves being hypocritical. Let's think about this giving first. So talent show Christians give in order to be praised. It's right there in the text. They want to do it to be praised. What Jesus has in mind here is is that of what's called almsgiving. You see, the religious leaders of their time were were very known, they were well known and, and somewhat positively famous for giving to those in need. They gave to people who had needs. They, they, they gave generously to, to the poor. And see, the problem wasn't their giving, but it was their motivation. They were, as the text says, sounding the trumpet. Right? They, the intercom that would come over your high school classroom. Da-ding! So-and-so has been nominated as the homecoming king or queen. Whatever. Like, they were, like, look at me. They were Snapchatting and Instagramming the money that they were putting into the plate. It wasn't their giving the problem. It was the reason for it. They did it to make themselves look generous, to appear philanthropic. I think about the, the cultural phenomenon that we're all aware of, that there can be a slippery slope here, and, and that's the ways in which things get named after people. I think about buildings on this campus. I think about our city at large. Um, I think about if you grew up in a church, there might be buildings named after people at church. Um, the, the athletic complexes are always named after people. And sometimes naming is a, really, is, a, is a really sweet way to honor somebody, right? That's been particularly devoted or committed or faithful to, to someone or something, right? There's a lot of good reasons to do this. But I think that the, the, the text here is, is, is helping us to ask this question like, wait, why does my name need to be up there? Because Jesus wants our giving to, to, to not be motivated by 
being seen, but by being seen by their father. And then we, we often think that, hey, look, the problem, the problem people are those that get really loud about their giving, right? Right? These, these religious leaders who wanted to be praised in front of other people, like, they're the real problems. But, but Jesus has something to say for the quiet ones in the bunch. He has something to say for those of us who just sort of, sort of fume inside at those really loud and obnoxious, generous people. And he says this in verse 3. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's getting at this idea of self-congratulations. In other words, don't be impressed with yourself. I think about how, in some helpful ways, but again, also sometimes in a slippery way, like it's very normal and natural for like the influencers uh, within, within our world to like respond uh, to, to natural disasters and to really horrific things. And, and it's just sort of over the top and it's quick, right? And then there's those of us who like, like we sort of think about things internally and we're not as vocal about them, but, but we can still sort of be subtly impressed with ourselves. Ooh, I did this. Ooh, I did that. Before we move on, I, I think it's helpful to note, like, look, I, I know that, that where you are in life, you're, you're not writing checks to, like, you know, give, give to this thing or to that thing, which you may. That'd be great. That'd be great. But probably, mostly, even though some of you have jobs, some of you have families that are supporting you back home, you're, you're definitely not in a place where, where you, when you come to think about giving, it's, it's like a, perhaps a normal part of your life. But before we moved on, I, I thought I would give some helpful indications of what this could look like if a heart devoted to God would actually be generous. And I want to do it by sharing a quick story, or at least an illustration of my life. I'll never forget in high school and in college, like, I was, I, I used to hate when my roommates would ask to borrow my clothes. Hey, man, can I wear that out? <clears throat> okay. Mama told me to. Like, right? It's like this sort of like, okay, if it comes back with a stain, right? I, th- I think that one area that our hearts can grow in generosity is to let people borrow our things. Like, not everything, and, and with wisdom. But like, when, when someone uses your pot or pan, when someone needs a ride, when, when someone needs something small, are you willing to give that? And more importantly, are you willing for it not to be reciprocated? Right? Are you willing to like, hey, there's no strings attached here? That's a very practical way in which this idea of, of being a giving student can look like positively. Jesus goes on to talk about our lives of prayer. And he says, talent show Christians pray to be seen, the text says. Again, these priests, these scribes, these religious leaders, they would pray outside the synagogues and at the street corners, like the OGs of street evangelists. And they would be praying. And it wasn't the fact that they were praying that was a problem. Again, it was their motivation. We know this, that there can be people who look and sound so godly, and yet they don't know the person to whom they pray. Jesus is calling this out in them and in us. They're wearing this mask. And evidently, according to this text, the pagans, or as the first to him as the Gentiles, were evidently known for being very verbose. Right? Verse 7 says they would just offer empty phrases. Right? You ever been in a group with somebody and be like, man, that person's theology is on point? Or, gosh, that person is so vulnerable. They just must know Jesus. 
Friends, do you pray to impress? I had one mentor remind me that something that I thought was helpful, and I'd like to pass it on here. Remember that as we pray, that we can pray what's there, what not, what, I'm sorry, we can pray what's actually in our hearts, not what should be, right? You, you, you don't have to sort of find your way into like knowing something really good to, to then begin to pray. And see, we're tempted to, to, to use prayer even itself as a way to perform. If you're a person who will only pray in a small group setting or in a large group setting, man, Jesus is looking at you. He's like, is this the only place that you're, that you're willing to sort of talk and to, and to hear yourself speak? We know plenty of prayer warriors out there that appear godly, and hopefully most of them are. But God is, is issuing a, a, a warning for those of us who, who think and have made prayer about something through which people can be impressed by us. And again, he applies this to the loud people and to the quiet people. Those who are loud in their prayers and those who <coughs> hate the people who are loud in their prayers. Right? Because both individuals are, are connecting their performance to prayer. I can't pray. I'm too afraid. Well, are you afraid of what someone might think? Are you afraid of yourself? Or I just want to pray. I'm really good at it. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. What is going on within your heart? Why? For what reason? He gives in this section, the very famous uh, section of, of the Lord's Prayer itself. And it serves something as a template. So if I could be practical here, I think that's something that all of us could grow in as we think about our prayers, our praying life. And that's to, to, to think about prayer um, first and foremost as a way to, to remind us ourselves of things that are true about God? Let me see if I can say that clear. I'm a bit bumbled tonight. Is that a word? That's not a word. Uh, I'm saying words I don't really understand what I'm saying, so maybe this is all for me. Uh, begin prayers acknowledging God for who He is. Begin to talk to God and tell yourself who He is to you. Begin to say things like, God, you made me. God, you are amazing. God, this, this is a beautiful day. God, before I was ever here, you thought of all of these things. God, you know what? I, you know what's true about me from Scripture? What's true of me is that because of Christ, I am yours forever. If you begin to pray, you see how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, worship your name. Friends, you will find your hearts attracted to the work of prayer. We can all grow in this area. We, we, we often only think of prayer as sort of the petition part of it. Lord, help me with this. Lord, help my friend with this. Which you should. It's a part of this template. But I think an area for us to begin to grow in is to begin to actually coach our souls and what they believe about the God they're praying to and find your heart drawn to this person. I think another very practical one, and this is... I might get in trouble for this. Like, we can rethink our food prayers for what reason are we praying? We're talking to the living God. I heard a comedian once say, like, what do we do? Just bless the hands, but don't bless the, the heart of the preparer, right? You ever heard this one? Bless the hands of the preparer. The sentiment's great. The sentiment's beautiful. But I think that's just a practical way we get to see prayer as, as an act of worship, as an act of connecting our hearts to the person we're praying. And finally, he begins 
to note the masks in us all about fasting. Talent show Christianity, these Christians fast because they want to be seen. Real quick, fasting can be abstaining from anything that's controlling you. It can be, it can be abstaining from anything that's short-circuiting your relationship with Jesus. It can be food. It can be alcohol. It can be social media. It can be a friend you don't like. No, I'm just kidding. It can be a lot of things. And, and Jesus is saying that, that there are those of us in all of us that will do so for the admiration and pity of others. We see that where he says that you disfigure yourselves in verse 16. And Jesus is saying, no, get your butt clean, wash your face, and don't draw attention to yourself. Talent so Christians fast to, fast, fast to draw attention to themselves. I think there's a wonderful opportunity here for us all. I don't know if anyone's ever tried this. I don't know if, if you've done it a few times and you felt like a total failure. But it could be something. As I was thinking about this text and what, like, an actual helpful way to do this. Like, the church has been fasting since its existence from all sorts of things. Of course, traditionally food. And I don't just mean intermittent fasting as a way of working out. But it could be a neat opportunity for, for you and a couple other people, right? Again, not some sort of public declaration but to experience what it would be like to abstain from something that you found so needful in your life, just to try it out. As he's working his way through giving and through praying, through fasting, these are both actual forms of devotion to God and representative, meaning there's, there's a dozen others. These aren't the only ones, but these are the ones that he's looking at, and, he, and he's pointing out these hypocritical masks that are upon us all. And the question he's asking as he makes his way through it is, why do you obey me? Or why don't you? It's always a question of motive. Friends, the authenticity of our spiritual lives hangs on this phrase, on this question. The text makes it clear that our hearts ache to be seen, to be heard, to be applauded. Why do we obey Jesus? And importantly, what is so profound about this text to me is that the thing that we most want to be seen, to be heard and affirmed is actually given to us by God, right? Did you see that he says that he sees us in secret over and over and over? So the question for us then is why aren't God's eyes, ears, and affirmation enough for us? Why do we default to performance religion? Why do we appropriate our talent show lives? to our life with him why do we think the point of being spiritual is to make us better behaved people here's the answer here's the big takeaway because we don't know him as father because we don't know him as father jesus references god as father 10 times which is to say the real reason hypocrites exist is because they don't know god as their father they know him as a boss that you have to work for to get a paycheck. They know him as a vending machine that you gotta put something in to get something out. They know him as a teacher whose admiration flows to you when you're successful. But they don't know him as father. Why do you think God gives us these practices of devotion? It's not so that we can impress him with how much we love him, but rather it's so that we can experience how much our father loves us. We pray so that we can sense His loving presence in our life. 
We read our Bible so that we can remind ourselves over and over how much our Father has committed Himself to rebellious children. We fast so that we can focus on the great love of our Father. The fourth commandment is that we would keep the Sabbath. I don't know if you remember at all, you ever heard this in church, but there was an episode in the Gospels um, in Jesus' life where, where, where Jesus was being accused of sinning, of being rebellious on the Sabbath, being rebellious on the day that he commanded to be worshipped alone. And he rebukes them, and he says this phrase, and I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, from the very beginning, the things that, that were given to experience God's love in our life, we have turned into a performance metric. He commands that we rest for our own soul's sake. How many of you rest well? None of us. How many of us only rest when the job is finished? Did you know that Sabbath rest actually commands that you stop working before it's finished? This is what it means. God wants to give us something, and yet our hearts, now so um, poisoned with this sort of talent show mentality that we can't receive his gift of knowing him. We can't receive the gift of worshiping him. Instead, we want to make ourselves feel good about the ways in which we think we can love and worship him. He gives us these things not to impress him, but so that we can experience his love. How can you know this? How can this transition happen in your life? How can a movement begin to happen over and over, hopefully habitual, where you don't see God in these ways, that you actually experience him for what he is, you pursue him for the purpose of letting him pursue you? You see, Jesus exclusively referred to God as Father ten times in this text, and almost exclusively throughout the Gospels, save one time. Do you remember where? On the cross. He spent his life referring to God as Father, being recorded by those that would write the Gospels, those that would hear him praying to his Father. There was one moment on his deathbed, if you will, where instead of referring to him as Father, he refers to him as God. Among all the other rich theological things that we could talk about, one for tonight is that Jesus does this because not only was he losing his life, he was losing his father. He was thrown out of the family so that we could be brought in. He was losing his rights as a child, the perfect child of God, eternal child of God, so that we could be brought in under the rights and status of adopted. He was losing his father's adoration and receiving God's displeasure on our behalf so that we could be brought in. In other words, he became the hypocrite that he never was so that he could win the talent show of our lives to save the hypocrites in us all so that we would find our deepest pleasure following our king and our father. When you know you have a father, who has given up everything to embrace you like this? You can answer the question, why do you obey me with? Because you loved me. This is what enables you and I to quit the talent show. Will you? Amen.